Hi, good morning, Trinity Church. How you doing? Good, good to see you. Go ahead and take a seat. You already have. You're sharper than I even imagined. Great stuff. Can we thank the worship team? What a great job this morning. And you're going to get to see them again. They'll come back up today to kind of wrap our time together. A, a few kind of unique things to me, new things, like even someone over here who's doing sign today. I don't know if I've met you before. Hi, what's your name? My name is Andrew. Andrew, nice to meet you, Andrew. And like maybe Andrew, do we, we have some college kids that are home. Do you want to stand up? If you're a college kid home on Thanksgiving break, we just want to, we're glad you're home. Okay. Very cool. Andrew, nice to meet you. I, you guys over here, you had a lot of new today. You had Andrew, then you had Adam sneaking over here doing some weird stuff on his base. Like <laughs> Stephen didn't know what was going on. It was like, what? What are you doing in my space? So all kinds of new, all kinds of new fun experiences today at Trinity Church is a good thing. We are really glad you're here. And this Thanksgiving week, as we get ready to celebrate and are with family, friends, what a great time. I know for some of us, this is a challenging time. There's a new void in your life that maybe wasn't here last year. And I just want to say to you, our prayers are with you as well. And knowing how God meets needs and meets us right where we're at. And often he does that in very tangible ways. Very much at a heart level, but also by people caring for us and reaching out to us. So I just want to encourage you with that this week as we move into that time. We do have that Thanksgiving Eve service. I'd love to see you Wednesday night and a time to just thank God together. Well, we're going to move into our, um, we're in Ephesians 6. We are landing the plane very soon. I'm mixing analogies because we've been using a football the whole time. So we're close to the end zone. Maybe that might be the best way to say it. You have notes in your worship folder if you want to get those out. If you have a Bible, you can open it to Ephesians chapter 6. When we began, some of you thought, I don't know if we're ever going to get there. And we finally are. We're going to get close to finishing up today. And we'll tell you some more about that in a minute. One thing I didn't want to forget, we have a great event going on for our ladies. That's our ladies' Christmas celebration. Not this Thursday, that'd be Thanksgiving, but the following Thursday, December the 1st. And that event really is targeted at being what we call an entry point event. An opportunity to invite someone who might normally not be a part of Trinity Church. And just want to encourage you as you prayerfully think through who to invite Ladies, we'd love for you to be proactive, intentional, because that's what this event is for. And so tickets are available out on the plaza today after service. Make sure you get those, and uh, we'll be able to see just some good things happen in ladies' lives. Well, here we are. This is a football, and we're getting close to putting the football away. Uh, We are almost finished with this book of Ephesians. And what we've been doing, our whole goal, was starting out with these very elemental things. Not to say that Ephesians is a simple book, but to say it's the foundation for us getting on the same page with God about his objectives for his church. Because that's what Trinity Church is. It's Jesus's church. And as we're trying to do that vertically to be on the same page with him and now also horizontally with each other, we've been seeing some really profound truths. You'd say that the first three chapters of Ephesians have really focused around this idea of our identity, of whose we are once we become in Christ. And as we learned those realities in the first three chapters, now the last three chapters are the expression What does it mean? What does it look like to live according to whose you are? And what we found in the first part of that is though we used to live as slaves to sin, God has transformed us, brought us into his home, given us a new name, given us a place at the table, and said, you are my son, you are my daughter, my heir. 
Let's begin to live this new life together. And and as you think about finishing this letter that Paul writes to the Ephesians, you'd think that he might want to finish with some really just kind of warm, embracing tones. But today, as we're going to see, it's what I call them are fighting words. And what Paul's going to lay out is he's going to not want to finish this letter without first being able to remind the Ephesian Christians that when they decided, when they committed, when they responded to the invitation of Jesus to be a follower, they were signing up for a military campaign. That's how Ephesians 6 is for the most part going to wrap up. And as we think of that idea, this tone and direction that Paul's going to take, it helps us know that we are to be on guard against a foe that has been our father's enemy from the very beginning of time. And we've been called into that. We've been drawn into that same battle as well. The great news is we're not to fear because we fight from a place of victory. And I know that sounds so weird because there's no other illustration of things in our lives that something has already been determined, something's already been won, and yet you're still called to engage it because the final consummation, the final gathering of the victory hasn't yet happened. So it's a now but not yet reality. We'll kind of dive into that a little bit today. Now, if you're here today and and you're just kind of curious about this whole God thing, you're just kind of kind of peaking interest. Like, what is, what is this whole spiritual world about? What's this Jesus thing about? And number one, I'm so glad you're here. Number two, this might sound a little bit creepy and weird. Like, what, what, what about battles and warfare? And what about the spiritual? What are we talking about? And part of it is, it might be that as just kind of becoming aware of things, it's a whole new world. Another part might be that there's already been some, some bad or poor expressions of the spiritual realm. Things like maybe you've seen in a horror movie that dipped into the occult. That was just super weird. People's heads rotating around. And you're like, oh, I don't want anything to do with that. Or maybe it's been that even you've seen things on TV that Christians have done in the name of spiritual warfare and just super weird to you. And I can say, I'm sorry that those haven't been helpful and you may be kind of grabbing hold or, or really being able to, to, to embrace what maybe the spiritual realm is about. But I want to say today as we dive in, I, I want to think of it this way. If you were here today and let's say that you've never had the ability to smell, it's a sense you've never had in your whole life. And, and you come into our family kitchen on Thanksgiving morning, right, as we're preparing this feast, and, and the smell of turkey. Tur- just the smell of turkey makes me sleepy. I don't have to eat the stuff, you know? <laughs> just the smell, I start nodding off. But the smell of stuffing and, and of mashed potatoes and gravy, all these great smells are going in the room, and, and you come into our kitchen, and I say, doesn't that smell great? And you go... I don't know what you're talking about. Now, just because you can't smell doesn't mean the smells aren't there. It just means you can't detect them. And what we're talking about today in the spiritual realm is we're talking about a spiritual reality that is there even though your eyes can't see them. And and you might very well be from a worldview that says, if I can't taste it, I can't touch it, I can't feel it, I can't see it, it's not real. And I would say, okay, then that's the place for faith. That's a place where faith comes in because there is a spiritual reality. Just the idea of of even the concept of God ushers in the idea that there's something spiritual. So even that is a step in that direction of going, maybe there's something out there I've never really given credit to 
or a really a loud entrance into my life. And so my point today for you is I want you to have open ears and eyes and see what this might be about. And really the, the masterful work on this topic, in my opinion, that helps us realize we're in the, this kind of battle every single day is C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters. Take a look at the board. You might have them in your notes. Here's a great quote. Screwtape is a, a demon who is tutoring, mentoring his younger demon nephew. And so that's the, the terms. Those are the main characters. So obviously their boss, their leader is the devil. And so it says, it's funny how mortals always picture us putting things into their minds, right? The picture of the little devil on your shoulder talking to you. But he writes, in reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. The best thing in the world for Satan to do is for you to think that he doesn't exist. And there's no enemy at all. There's no nothing at all beyond what you can see. And today, as we look into this passage, we're going to dive in and see some things that are very, very real and very, very helpful to understand and engage. The idea of a battle or a military campaign, it's not a new idea for Jesus's church. I remember like you might have grown up like I did in church singing songs like onward Christian soldiers, right? Or in my era of contemporary Christian music, it was Petra's This Means War. This means war, right? So um, either way, either way, this idea of spiritual battle, you just don't laugh at the 80s, okay? (laughs) 80s were an incredible time culturally. I didn't, I meant musically. No, I didn't even mean that. Okay, sorry. But here's the point. Jesus's church has consistently, though, misunderstood who the enemy is. I think we've been a little bit aware that there is an enemy, but we have significantly, consistently misunderstood who is the enemy that we're to engage. Watch this. In just my time, I was, I came to Ukaipa when I was nine, lived there until I was 18. And that stretch of time, Just in that community, in my community, we misunderstood the enemy in things like this. At one time, we misunderstood the enemy to be an adult bookstore. And so what did we do? We picketed. Another time, we misunderstood the enemy to be serving alcohol at our favorite church, our favorite restaurant after church. (laughs) Some of you are going, okay, some really cool churches in Ukaipa, Todd. So when our favorite restaurant after church began to consider serving alcohol, what did we do? We engage in spiritual warfare of pickets. Some of us misunderstood that our, the enemy was a morally bankrupt curriculum in our public schools. And what did we do? We picketed. Now, watch. I never said that those things were not significant issues, but they were never the enemy. And over my lifetime alone, just in my time, my 45 years on the planet, the church has interpreted the enemy to be the gay pride political agenda or the immorality in the White House or the Russians or MTV or evolution. And these things may or may not be significant parts of our journey as the church of Jesus Christ, however, Either way, no matter what, they were never the enemy. And here's the thing I really want you to hear today. What happens is when we take an issue and we say, that's the enemy, we connect faces to it. And then we say, they are the enemies. And I want you to hear this super crystal clear because the Bible's gonna teach it today. No human being has ever been your enemy. Maybe pawns, 
but never your enemy. His name is the devil. His name is Satan. And he rightly so is the true enemy of us, of God's people. And so we want to be careful to not misunderstand who it is we're to engage with and how it is we are to fight. In your notes, this is important to me that you get this. Know who, today we're going to look at, know who your enemy is and know how you've been equipped to engage him. Today we want you to help you know who your enemy is and know how you're equipped to engage him. So let's dive in. Number one in your notes today, you need spiritual power to fight a spiritual war. You need spiritual power to fight a spiritual war. We begin Ephesians chapter six, where we left off last week, now in verse 10. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Now, Paul begins to land the plane. His letter is now coming to an end. And and the interesting word is, we might rightly so interpret that word finally, but another rendering of this original Greek word is, is the idea of for the remaining time. I kind of think that's so fitting to what we're looking at today. For the remaining time, as though there's something else still to come, very much a part of our discussion today of these spiritual battles, for this remaining time, till your big brother comes to bring you home. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. These three words of strength are all connected in this very same little sentence, strong, mighty, power. And the reality is that we walk away with is they all come from God. They all come from outside of you. Even the verb that we said, it says, uh, how do we read that? Be strong. Another way as you look at the, the verb tense is the idea of strengthen yourself. Strengthen yourself in the mighty power. When you hear that word, you kind of realize, well, there's two concepts that are being presented at once. On the one hand, the you, there is a you element of of strengthening yourself, and it's the idea of putting yourself in a position, putting yourself in a posture to what? To receive strength. It'd be the idea if I said you need to refresh yourself. Well, refresh yourself would have two elements. One would be that you create an atmosphere, you create a, a space where refreshment can happen, but the refreshment is going to be a tall glass of iced tea and sitting out on the back patio with someone you want to talk to, or for introverts, no one at all. (laughs) So refresh yourself means that you've done something to create an atmosphere, but the outside thing is what's actually doing the refreshing. Same for this, strengthen yourself means you put yourself in a position where you can receive the strength that God wants to give, that God needs to give if you are going to engage this battle correctly. To engage in the spiritual battle that you as one of God's kids find yourself You need to consciously look to God for the spiritual power that you need to deal with the spiritual enemy that you face. Here's what we're going to see today. Remember these big overarching themes of Ephesians has primarily been about the idea of identity in Christ. What we're going to see today is don't fear because as you remain in him, he is the one who goes before us. He is the one who fights the battle. Watch this. Stand in his shadow. Stand in his shadow, let him do the work, and he will. He already has, and he will continue to do so. I guess the simple part of this idea of our need for spiritual power is simply this, don't bring a knife to a gunfight. It's that simple, okay? Number two in your notes, your enemy is the devil, and your mission is to stand firm. 
Your enemy is the devil and your mission is to send for. Remember we said today we wanted to really articulate who is the enemy and how are you to engage? Well, this is the first part. The aspect of the, the devil is clearly um, communicated. Ephesians 6.11. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Watch. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, to stand. In... in church circles, when we talk about spiritual warfare, that phrase, this is usually where we go. Our Bibles usually open up to Ephesians 6. I want to encourage you today to see this passage with some fresh eyes. If you have already come to this passage before, I know what this means, I know what this looks like, just, I just ask you to kind of hit the, the reset button, the clear slate in your mind, and, and listen to it through a new lens. First off, we're directed to put on the full armor of God. What we're going to see today, time and time again, I think Paul is super strategic with this. We're going to see themes all the way through the book of Ephesians keep resurfacing. First off, this even verb, put on, it's a word you've seen before. Chapter four, it said what? Take off the old self and put on the new. From this is the same exact verb, to put on the new self. And the new self was created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So this idea, there is an activeness within it. There is something that we are called to engage volitionally. Secondly, it says the whole armor of God. That word in the Greek language is very, very um, particular to be all-inclusive. It's, it's very detailed to say not just some of the elements of God's armor, but all of them. Very important. So we've been kind of sticking with this football motif throughout. And, and it'd be like this. If you were a football player, if you were an athlete going out to, to engage, then it'd be like this. It's like you're, you're putting all the pads on, you're getting all suited up, and you look at your helmet and you go, eh, I'll be okay without that. That's not going to go well. Or, or you're putting on your pads, putting everything on, and you go, ah, oh, those shoulder pads are so restrictive. I'm just going to leave those here. And you and your separated shoulder after the first play would be a whole different thing, right? I mean, these are very, very important. And no one would ever go into a football game partially put together. So Paul says, go into battle with all of the armor, with the whole armor of God. Now, for this next idea, I will say, I'm just going to do this. I'm going to say, I have done, I feel, a pretty good job in this series of not talking about football too much. You may disagree. I mean, I hold one up every week. But outside of that, I've, I've kept the football illustrations down. But I, but I want to say, in this next idea, what does Paul say is the actual now posture or the thing we're called to do is to stand, to stand. I was reading a bunch of commentaries and ideas this week. I came across a great great pastor from a generation before named Ray Stedman. And Ray Stedman used this idea, a football illustration of what he called, what we know as a goal line stand, okay? A goal line stand. Let me explain. This is how it works. If you're playing a game of football, and let's say that a a team is getting very close to scoring, they call it inside the 20-yard line, the red zone, but this is a goal line stand. like you're kind of within the 5-yard line. You are 15 feet away or less from scoring, super close. And if you're on defense, man, your, your blood's pumping because you're like, this could go really bad. They're about to score. Well, this goal line stand, that's kind of the posture that, 
Ephesians 6 is talking about is we're called to stand. Now, in order to really help that make sense, I wanted to show you a clip. This just happened last Sunday night. If you're here today and you're a Patriots fan, I am so sorry you have to watch this again. (laughs) Because as a result of this goal line stand by the Seattle Seahawks, you lost the game. Take a look. This is how it goes. Taking as much time off the clock as they can. Brady's going to try to burrow his way in. Meanwhile, second down and goal. Here's Blunt, and he is nothing yet from the officials. They come in, want to see where the ball is, and mark it outside the goal line. Blunt is the running back. Does Brady sneak it? He tries to. He loses the ball. He loses the ball, so he doesn't get in number one. If Seattle recovered, the game is in effect over, but it looks like Brady winds up with the ball. Usually a fade to Gronkowski here. And all kinds of action in the end zone. They look for a flag. They see none. And that's going to make it official. Okay, now, by the way, you guys are great. You're actually cheering as you're watching this. This is, this is great. You're, you're not a Patriots fan. Um, so, so here's what I, I, I show that to you. It was so timely. It, I was watching this game last Sunday night. It was happening right in front of my eyes. I'm like, this is exactly what that idea is about. Now, we're going to do a couple things. First off, if you are a Patriots fan, I'm even more sorry because not only did you have to keep watching yourself lose, but we're going to equate you with the devil in just a minute. <laughs> totally random. If you guys would have scored Sunday, it wouldn't have even happened, okay? Not my fault. But here's the idea. The idea is like, oh, let me say this first, by the way, too. If you're here today and you're a USC fan, let me just say, I just want to, I want to show you my olive branch and my thinking. What, what I could have done, I've refrained. What I could have done this week is really search for a video clip of UCLA holding off USC at a goal line stand and, and then also vilified you as the devil, Okay. But I didn't primarily because I can't find one of those. And we're <laughs> just so very, very sad. Okay, so back to this. Here's the deal. So what, what we talk about in the illustration is Satan's forces are on the offense in this sequence. They're on the offense and, and God's team, his church, is defensively holding the line. That's their job. And what God has done as the owner is he's called into the coach Paul, the apostle, writes to the Ephesians, signals into the game Jesus' church to hold the line, to stand. Interesting to note, the language, the verbiage of Ephesians 6 is not to advance. The language of Ephesians 6 is not to bind. The language of Ephesians 6 is not to somehow thwart because we leave all that up to our owner. Our call, our posture, our commands are to hold the line. Now watch this. There were uh, defensive players on Sunday night's game who I'm sure the adrenaline, I mean, this is down to the wire. You saw when they didn't score on the fourth down, all that Seattle had to do was get out of the uh, end zone and they win. It was over. So it it was that crucial right to the edge of the game. If you were a defensive player, you know the game is riding on you. Like, this is a big deal. Adrenaline must have been pumping. They were all psyched up. And there were probably some who were like, I believe that we can hold them off, that we can keep this really good offensive team from scoring. But 
But none of them knew. None of them knew for sure. Might have great positive attitudes, might have had a real strong confidence, but nobody knew for sure beyond a shadow of a doubt that they could do it. You did today. I did because I watched it Sunday night and when I saw it again, I already knew how it was going to go. That's what God has called us to as a people is not to simply try to have a good attitude, not to try to be really positive, but to know. Think of the kind of confidence that those Seattle Seahawks defensive players would have had if they would have been so incredibly able to be convinced because they would have already seen the future of how it was going to go. Think of the confidence they would have had in that goal line would not have been a question of if, but of how. It is not if we're going to stop them. It's simply going to be interesting to see how it all comes together. That's what Jesus says is the place of of posture that you stand in, that I stand in as his church. Not a question of if he's won, because here's the great news. And this is why we said it's hard for us to wrap our competitive minds around this idea. Even our military minds around this idea. Why do you keep fighting once the battle's over? If victory's been won, what are we still doing here? And the great news is, Jesus says that at my cross and at my empty tomb, I defeated sin and death for all. It's over. And what we do in this time, in this meantime, like we started Ephesians 6.10 today, in this time, Jesus is still about rescuing lost people. That is still happening and we get to be a part of not only holding off, not only this goal line stand against the enemy, but Jesus the son is still adding to his church. And what a great role we get to be a part of. What a great confidence that we get to live out of. And that reality is so true. Our enemy in this passage is clearly defined. The battle is not against flesh and blood. That's why with great clarity a couple minutes ago, I could clearly get real passionate and say, your enemy's never been someone with a face like yours. Not against flesh and blood. But watch, but against whom? Who's on this team? Against rulers, against authorities, against powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces in the heavenly realms. This term, the heavenly realms, is used five times in this small letter of Ephesians alone. It's a concept we become familiar with all the way back in chapters one, two, and three. And they've all included the idea of spiritual beings that are real, but are unseen to our eyes. And what's the directive? What are you called to do? What is your mission in the battle? To stand. To stand. When you engage from a posture, when you begin engage from a confidence and that the victory has already been won by Jesus, I will tell you, as part of his church, it gives you that same attitude. It's not if this is all going to work out or if Jesus really did win. It's simply now how is it going to play out? How is it going to finish? And there's something about that confidence that for you and for me should give us great joy living out the life we get to live. Finally, number three today, you've been equipped with everything you need to stand firm. You've been equipped with everything you need to stand firm. We wrap it up, chapter six, verse 14. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith 
with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now we get to the spiritual equipment. Remember two big things I want you to get today. Who is your enemy and how are you to engage him? From a posture of standing and now with this armament is what we're going to look at. Now most would say, and I think for good reason, that like, Todd, why, why all the like pieces of actual armor? Like what are we talking about and, and where'd Paul get this? And Lot would say that Paul didn't have to think hard, didn't have to, hmm, how am I going to communicate this? Because all he had to do was look at the centurion he was chained to. Remember that Ephesians is what we call one of our prison epistles. So Paul is jailed at this time and very easily could have just looked at this centurion and said, oh, well, salvation's kind of like a helmet. And, and this idea of righteousness, like a breast, breastplate, like this armor you put on, and, and could have easily done that. And I don't disagree with that at all, but I do want to say something, that these ideas here in Ephesians 6 are not new to the Bible. Back in Isaiah, 800 years earlier, take a look at the screen, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 5, righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist talking about Messiah. Now watch again. Look at the next one. Isaiah 59, 17. And I'll just read it. I think we had the, the scripture wrong in the back. It says, he put on righteousness as his breastplate, the helmet of salvation on his head, and he put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. That's a lot of the same verbiage. And so I, I'm not really hung up on it. I don't really care. The reality is, is Paul is using an armor, a military motif to communicate ideas. Now I want to say this. We could spend, and I have heard it done before, hours unpacking all of the military things. The sword Paul's talking about, it's not a really long sword, it's a short sword for guerrilla warfare. And the, the shoes, the boots, that military, we could go off on that. And if we had a whole series, maybe someday we will. We have one day and I don't want to do that because here's what I want to do. Again, kid growing up in church, you get kind of a, an interesting perspective on things. I think it's very easy to get caught up in all of the motif and forget the basic reality of what has God given you. That's what I want to look at today. I'm literally going to discard everything about the motif, not because I don't think it's great, but because in a short amount of time, I don't want you to miss this is what God has given you for the meantime. So let's unpack those things. Number one, truth. God has given you the resource of truth. And why is this so important? Your enemy is called the father of lies. Pretty important. Pretty important that you have the resource of truth in this whole thing. And, and it didn't begin just yesterday. The very first time that we see Satan is in a garden with our first parents and he is deceiving them to engage in a sinful way against their creator. Satan comes on the scene when Jesus arrives and he tempts him deceptively to do something against the grain, against the nature, against the will of his father. Paul writes about Satan being an angel of light masquerading as one in righteousness who's truly one of deception. This is your enemy, know him. Know what he's about. He speaks lies. And so the reality of being equipped with truth, you could have no better resource. At times, my kids, they'll come to me, my girls at home, they'll come to me and they'll say, Dad, you know, so-and-so said this about me. 
Or even within our home, one of their own siblings, so-and-so said, I did this. And I'll just look at them and I'll ask them, did that really happen? Or are you really that? And they'll say, no. I'll go, okay. So the truth is X, but Y was said. Guess what? The truth always wins. Truth always stands against this reality of what is unreal, of what is false. And that's why truth is so essential. But here's the interesting thing. We live in a world today where truth has become very gooey. I will never forget flipping channels. I couldn't even tell you which reality show it was, but it was two people having an argument. And as I was just flipping channels, I was listening, and I'll never forget the very first time I heard someone use the phrase, my truth. The minute you put that pronoun in front of truth, you've changed it. It's no longer true. Because it's not your opinion that matters. It's not your point of view that will save the day. It is truth. Objectively true truth. We are armed with such against an enemy who loves, loves to lie. The second resource is righteousness. You've been equipped, you've been given righteousness. Now, this is what I call a Bible land word, and I'm not referring to the sand sculpture place between Yucaipa and Calamesa that used to exist, as great as that was. Bible land to me means this. It's a word that we say in church a lot that no one really knows what it means, but we just nod our heads. Like, oh yeah, sure, righteousness, whatever. Righteousness easily defined as this, that which is approved by God. That is what is righteous, what is right, That's really, when you break the word down, that's what it means. That which is approved, that which is right by God's standards. Remember, we've come up, and this is what's so cool, as we we see Ephesians 6 kind of landing, you're gonna see these, these, these words go back, and here's the cool thing. Everything in this list of seven armaments, you've already heard about in this book. None of them come out of the, out of the, corner, out of the background. Like, where'd that come from? They've all been themes throughout Ephesians. So I think Paul, if nothing else, he's just kind of wrapping up the book by saying being in Christ and having these new things as a part of his family, you've already been prepared. This word righteousness, we already said a minute ago, it was regarding the new self. You put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Again, we saw it in chapter five that you, it said, isn't this great in the Bible said this? It didn't say you're in the light. It didn't say you reflect the light. It said you are light. And part of that evidence, part of the fruit of the light is righteousness. So as you live out your new self put on, as you live out this emanating light that comes from you because of God's presence in you, Righteousness abounds in your life and is vital to standing against your enemy. Number three, peace. Peace. It's fascinating the way this is written. It says the good news of peace, the euangelion, the the gospel of peace. What a fascinating word. Peace, remember, is used four times throughout this book, and it was all in chapter two. And remember the lengths we went to to talk through, Jesus is our peace. And we go, well, why do we need peace? Well, we need peace with God vertically because there's sin in the equation. And then we need peace with others horizontally because there's been a wall of hostility that's been erected. That idea of Jew and Gentile, no more because Jesus has made a new humanity. So this is this great news of peace. We've heard about it throughout the book. 
Remember we described in chapter two that peace isn't the absence of turbulence. That's often what we think. Peace means calm. Have you ever seen a body of water, especially like a river who looks really calm on top, but you get in it, it's anything but. A rushing torrent underneath. So calm is not what it looks like on top, or peace isn't that. Peace is when all essential parts are joined together. That's peace. In battles, battles are filled with chaos and confusion. So how good to know and experience the good news of peace that we have from Jesus because he is that reality. He is that good news to us. Next, faith. Faith is another thing you've been armed with. We've been acquainted all throughout this book of Ephesians about faith. Chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4 all mention the idea. Remember how important it was in chapter 2. You have been saved by grace through faith. So we would understand that in an in a element of a battle of spiritual warfare, Remember, we define faith as this, trusting God with what you can't see. Faith is simply defined as trusting God with what you can't see. How essential is it to have faith, to have trust in God for the things you can't see when you're fighting a battle, what? You can't see. Faith is essential. No way around it. Next, salvation. Salvation. It refers to the quality of being saved, of being rescued. And the resource of salvation we saw earlier in the book, remember all the way back in chapter one, this idea of being a slave upon a block, enslaved to sin with no hope. God comes and he pops the lock, he redeems, he buys back, and he brings us into his home. And we saw the fully ordered picture of salvation is not just a gold get out of hell ticket. But salvation is freedom from slavery to sin and not just a new slavery, but freedom to be adopted into the family of God and as a result of that, to live out my life in Christ as God's heir. That's salvation. Check it. That's the first step in this equation of spiritual warfare is to actually be adopted into the family to have this idea of spiritual inclusion through the person of Christ. That's where it all begins. It's back to that idea of smelling. If someone were to say, hey, you're gonna be a judge of judging the difference between these fragrances, but you can't smell, not a lot of help. Spiritually speaking, as you are saved, as you are rescued, you enter into this reality of being a part of God's church, God's family, and by nature of that, engaging in spiritual warfare. And here's the thing. For those of us who put our faith in Christ, who've responded to that invitation of salvation, guess what? You get to not only be a part of this goal line stand, but like we've seen in the book of Ephesians, you were rescued to rescue. You get to be a part of God's saving effort, saving design, saving purpose in people's lives. That's a part of who you are, and that's so cool to think about. Finally, the word of God. What have you been outfitted with? You've been given the word of God. Concept of God's revelation is prolific in the book of Ephesians, because remember, five times the word mystery has shown up. And remember what we said, mystery is not like kind of the magician's kind of, um, you know, thing in the upper in the castle, you know, mystery. No, mystery biblically is something that was previously veiled. It was unknown, un- un- made un- it was unclear, that is now made clear. 
So mysteries are solved, as it were, in the person of Christ. So mystery, the revelation of God, has been a huge theme all the way through. And for us to engage a spiritual battle against a spiritual enemy requires a spiritual book. Requires an inspired, God-breathed book that we can rely upon for instruction as we ought to fight. These are your resources. Your equipment for battle against an enemy who prowls around like a lion looking for someone to devour. Make no mistake, your enemy's very real. But also make no mistake that as you stand in the shadow of your big brother, he reigns victorious. And these two realities lived in that kind of balance, they bring great things in our lives so we know how to walk. Understand that the battle is real and as a child of your heavenly father, he's equipped you with everything you need to stand your ground until he sends your big brother to come back for you. Here's our game plan this week, done great with X's and O's. It says, know who your enemy is and know how you've been equipped to engage him. Let that be the lifeblood of what we live out this week. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you today so very, very grateful for this whole big idea that you have rescued us, you've saved us. And the fact that you have an enemy that now becomes our enemy, always was really, even though we lived under his leadership before, now for sure, we recognize today from your word who the enemy is and also God, how we are to stand, what things you've equipped us with. And for those things, we say thank you. We are grateful to not only be aware of the fact of a spiritual battle, but to have the resources we need to stand. If you're here today and you would just say, Todd, you know, this is so confusing to me, all this battle, weird warfare. I don't even know what to do with that. All I know is that I'm trying to figure out who Jesus is. I'm trying to figure out who God is and what he wants me to do next. And I am so glad you're asking that question because I have a very simple answer. Your very next step is to respond to the invitation Jesus has already made. He's invited you to come come off the slave block. He's already popped the locks. He's paid the debt. Come off the block and come home into his family. You do that by admitting that you're a sinner, admitting that you've lived life on your terms apart from God's design. You believe that Jesus is the only savior available, the things we've talked about, what he's done at the cross and the empty tomb today. You believe that that somehow pays a debt for you and see you choose. You choose to walk in his path. You choose to take your place among his kids in this stand, knowing He wins. You can make that choice today. And my encouragement to you is that you would. Don't let another moment go by. Nothing else more needs to happen. But for you to say, Jesus, I recognize that I need a savior. I believe that you are him. I choose to walk your way. Father, this week, would it be such a great week of celebration and giving thanks because we are a people so bountifully blessed. We love you and we pray in Jesus' name, amen.